Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books that they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Max Berry is an Australian author of the books Jennifer Government, Syrup, Company, and the book we recently reviewed, Machine Man. He was nice enough to come on and talk to us a little bit today. Max, thanks for taking the time to talk to Book today. Thank you. Okay, so we recently reviewed Machine Man, and whenever we interview someone whose book we recently reviewed, we'd like to give them a chance to do a better job of explaining it than we did. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about Machine Man? Right. Well, first, it was a wonderful review, may I say, um, and I feel very good about doing interviews with people who are as positive about my material as, as you guys were. So, yeah, thanks a lot for that. I think I think you did a great job. I mean, I, I really couldn't praise myself more than you guys already did. So, um, look, I, uh, to summarize the book, uh, it's a story, a, a fairly geeky story. It's me doing science fiction about as wholeheartedly as I've ever attempted before, uh, charting the progress of a, of a man, an engineer, who loses a leg in an industrial accident, uh, is given this standard hospital prosthesis and is fairly disappointed in it. Uh, it's, it's fairly basic technology. He works with more advanced materials at work. So being a tinkerer, he starts to think about ways to make it better. And uh, I guess the story is the progress of him from at first trying to fix himself and then discovering more and more parts of his body that he really thinks could be better and setting off down a path to improve himself as far as possible, improving uh, being in his eyes, uh, making biological stuff uh, better. We know you've been pretty open about um, suffering from a bit of writer's block um, when you started uh, Machine Man. What was your inspiration to, to get into that story? I don't think it was writer's block in that I was writing tons of stuff. It just wasn't visible to people who were following my website. Um, I, I write a lot of a lot of stuff. I've been writing screenplays, drafts of, of books. I rewrite endlessly. And, and I don't like to talk about any of this stuff on my site because I like to just sit down and work without, um, without letting that energy out, I guess. So um, what happened was this was terribly frustrating for people who were actually following my website and reading these blogs about me growing a mustache for Movember and, and <laughs> playing with my kids and all this. So, so finally, one guy got so upset with me, he, he posted this abusive message on, on my site saying, Max, what are you doing? I, I need good books to read. I'm so bored. I had to read Twilight. <laughs> so it's, um, it wasn't that I couldn't write. It was just that to these people, I was sitting around doing nothing all day. So yeah, the idea was to basically get something out there and to experiment with the internet as a platform for delivering fiction. Because I I thought for a while that there should be a great way to read fiction on the net, but there wasn't yet. I'd seen authors who were posting a chapter of their book on their sites. Uh, I'd seen attempts to write fiction on Twitter and even on mobile phones, and none of it really seemed to fit well with the medium for me. I found that trying to read any serious chunk of fiction on the internet was was terrible. It's it's so distracting when you know that there are videos of dancing dogs just a few clicks away. It's difficult to fall into a novel like that. So, so my idea was to write this serial where each each day you would get a uh, a page in your email or on your mobile phone or, or whatever, and it would be short enough to to just distract you from what you should be doing for about two minutes, and then let you get back to your day. And I thought that was probably a happy medium for me, and that each page would be long enough to do something interesting with, but, but short enough to not demand too much of people in terms of um, an immediate time requirement. <laughs> Great. And as far as actually the, the content of a story with um, the gentleman who loses his leg and everything, where did that, uh, that nugget of a, an idea come from? 
the idea I got, I was walking along the street in Melbourne where I live in Australia and uh, I was walking past this parking garage and a guy in a sports car came bouncing out of it and, and cut me off basically. I had to stop and, and wait for this guy to, to slide past and um, his stereo was thumping and he, uh, he was dressed like a, like a douchebag basically. <laughs> and um, I, it just occurred to me that here was this guy in this incredible car. The car was probably the pinnacle of hundreds, thousands of years of scientific achievement. Everything from the radio through to the engine is, is an absolute marvel of engineering. The sheer amount of genius that's gone into that is staggering. But the driver was a dick. So it occurred to me this line popped into my head. We're making better machines than people. So I was thinking about that. Um, and, yeah, I, I guess I just started thinking... We're getting to this point now as a society where we have the technology to do better than biological. And at the moment, we're, we're not really... We've gone into that a little bit. We can, we, there's cosmetic surgery. There's chemicals you can take to change your mood, to change your appearance, to fix minor things that are wrong with you. Uh, we can install pacemakers in people to replace their heart, regulate their hearts. Um, but we're really just on the edge of a new age where this technology will be available to not just fix things that should be working better, but to actually do better than biological, to, to provide new functionality. So, yeah, I, I, was, I was interested in telling the story of a guy who was a very logical sort of personality. And this was a big thing about the book for me, being able to capture this uh, personality of a guy who's essentially a software engineer, someone who is used to dealing with... Uh, digital things that are perfect uh, and that, that that can be made perfect where you have complete control over the machine, complete control over all the hardware and who likes to, to play around with things. I think I count myself as one of these geeky guys and, and I play around with software a bit myself and I think that, that there's this um, quite common personality now who just loves to control technology, loves to buy a device whether it's a phone or a tablet or whatever and be in charge of it not just do what the company what apple maybe wanted you to do with it but actually play around with it and make it better customize it in all ways that suit you so it's basically that mindset applied to the human body a guy who wants to be able to hack his own body and to be in charge of it and it led down to some interesting questions about how much of your body is actually you as in, we have this kind of idea of like a mind-body disconnect, for example. There's like, we look at those things as if they're separate. But, of course, your body does affect your mind. You, you drink a cup of coffee and it affects how you actually feel and think. So, uh, Charlie, the protagonist in his book, discovers that there's not really that, that line between mind and body like he expected. And he is, uh, I guess he's confronted eventually with the question of where he is in his body. Is he in his brain? Is he some consciousness that just happens to, to be interpreted by his brain? And um, as he removes more pieces of himself and replaces them with artificial pieces, it, uh, it gets into the question of, of whether the artificial parts are more him than the biological parts. Yeah, I had mentioned um, during our review that I don't believe in science like some people don't believe in Santa Claus, which is something I've been saying for, for a long time. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around science. But that being said, I found all of the scientific stuff to be fairly believable, at least at my very, 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 very limited <laughs> knowledge level. Um, how much oh, research and what type of research did you do for some of the more technical aspects of the book? 
Yeah, look, it's amazing how easy research is these days because when I got started writing novels probably 12 or 14 years ago, research basically meant driving to libraries and calling people who never called you back. And now uh, you can go on the internet and... I guess, first of all, just find a ton of information without doing anything more than moving your mouse. And secondly, find people who can help you. You can reach out to people and actually track down an expert in this or, or ask a person in that. And, and the funny thing with the serial was those people came to me to a degree as well. I was writing this thing in public, and so I would get emails from people where I happened to stumble into some area that, that they knew a bit about. They would email me and, and point me at interesting research. I was about a third of the way through the story, I think, and um, I received a couple of emails from people who worked in or were studying in neuroscience uh, who pointed me to a, some fascinating studies of what sort of things were going on in that field at the moment. And that helped shape how I actually developed the story from that point forward. There was, um, there was one in particular where I, uh, was, um, I got an email from this neuroscience major and she said, uh, one of the most interesting things about that field was when people lose a major part of their body, a hand or a leg, they, they have a fairly large part of their brain that is suddenly out of a job. They have all these neurons that then just roam around the body looking for new jobs. And there's been cases of people who have a heightened sense of smell after an amputation and develop parts of their brain in unexpected ways just because these free-roaming neurons just attach randomly to some part of the brain. So, I mean, that's a fascinating concept. And, and I thought that was one that, that I could usefully explore in this book. And that becomes a fairly major part of the ending. That was, yeah, one of the things that I found most fascinating about the book was the idea of, like, your brain repurposing those types of things. Yeah, neuroplasticity. It's, it's an incredible concept that we, we don't just have this brain that's fairly static, that, in fact, it's, it's very malleable and it can adapt, I guess, like any other part of your body. It's like if you work out a lot, you develop all these muscles that become good at working out, and the brain can develop in, in very, very fluid ways as well. Okay, so you mentioned the serial, and uh, you actually talked a lot about it, so our questions might have changed a little bit, but my question is, some people are coming to your book uh, directly to the print version, like I hadn't read the serial before I went to this, do you think it's something that people would enjoy going back to? Um, is it something you recommend? Because I know in the back of the book you said that there's some serious, serious differences and and stuff like that. So what do you think that experience would be going back and reading the serial after reading the print book? I think it would be hard to go from the book to the serial. I think you can go the other way because there are a lot of people who followed that serial all the way through, who posted comments on a lot of pages. And from what I can gather, those people have quite enjoyed then picking up the book and seeing how it changed. Um, the other way would be more difficult because... Um, well, frankly, I think the book is better than the serial. The serial was really a first draft. It was me writing a page and posting it that day. And first drafts, I mean, I don't care who you are, first drafts are terrible. First drafts are always really bad. And, and maybe people don't appreciate so much the, the difference between a first draft and a finished book, but it's usually pretty, pretty huge. And in my case, it's always huge. So it was kind of cruel of me to inflict this first draft on people as I was writing it. But uh, what I did after that is spend a good maybe nine months rewriting that into a novel. And uh, it, the novel's about 50% longer. Even the parts that are the same, uh, little scenes that are the same premise as the serial, I 
I really feel like I retold those. I didn't just, you know, tidy them up a little bit. I, I had to retell those scenes to, to be in the novel. One of the issues I had when I finished the serial and actually sat down to look at it to be turned into a novel was that the serial was just unreadable as a long piece of fiction. It's, there's cliffhangers every two minutes. Uh, it's constantly reminding you where you are in the story when you don't need that. Um, and all of that was essential when I was writing this thing that was supposed to be read in tiny bite-sized pieces once per day. But when it comes to reading it as a novel, you need to be able to sit down and actually sink into the story. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, even these scenes that were basically the same as in the serial in terms of plot line or, or specifically what happens, uh, I think if you compare them line by line, by line, you find that there are pretty big differences. Mm. All right. Kind of embarrassingly, and we mentioned this during our review, it took some of us a lot longer than I would <laughs> normally expect to catch your uh, wordplay on the characters' names. Um, yeah, look, but- I was pleased to hear that. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, maybe I was being a little too obvious with that. I, wow. I'm kind of addicted to um, comic book names or just interesting names. And they're like the face of the character for me because they're the part that you see every time they say something or do something. So, um, yeah, look, I, I did I did have fun with the names. Um, and look, it, ideally, I think a reader is like you. You know, they, they don't really pick up that <laughs> what the names are saying. This is so embarrassing, but I was literally writing the notes for the review, and I look and I go, I go, there's Newman, there's that, there's that, oh, huh. So I told right. Rob, I said, hey, I'm sure you probably noticed this, and he goes, nope, didn't notice it. So <laughs> right. a little right. embarrassing for us to admit, but it was fun, especially even after the fact. I think it, it was actually probably better to catch it after the fact in retrospect and kind of the aha moment, so... Um, yeah, look, I'm always worried that I'm I'm just getting too addicted to silly names and that they're, they're distracting. But I really, I, I, all of my books basically have characters with names that are odd for one reason or another. So at this point, I probably can't lay claim to it being for literary reasons, but rather just because it amuses me. <laughs> so one thing that um, at least, and I don't know how, how widespread this is, but uh, that we're seeing from multiple sources is talk about your book trailer. Uh, we saw several different friends of ours on Facebook post it. And I actually, I think it was actually in, um, it was an article. I don't know exactly what the newspaper was. So what's your feelings on book trailers in general? Cause it seemed like you, you were doing that one kind of tongue in cheek. Yeah. Look, I, I did have fun with that. I got to feel like an actor for half a day. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, book trailers. The thing is now that, that authors are expected to be promoters in a really big way. And when I got started, you know, you, you expected to do a few interviews here and there, and, and that was about it. And the rest of the time, they actually let you get on with the business of writing. But publishing's gone through some tough times, and what a publisher really wants from an author these days is someone who builds their own platform, as they say, where you, you cultivate your own readership through online or whatever it is that you do that you actually bring the audience to the publisher to a degree. And they want you to, um, as part of the promotional effort, not just maybe tour a few bookstores, but to do a book trailer and to go on Twitter and to, to write blogs and, and do this and that. So it's, uh, I guess it's more of like a celebrity thing now that you're expected to, to promote yourself more than, than your work. So with the book trailer, yeah, I just thought it was a fun opportunity to to um, create an anti-book trailer in a way and, and have fun with the idea, that, okay, I, I have to make this thing. Um, 
but you know it's so removed from whether this is a good book or not you know it's like the whether you enjoy the trailer for a book has very little to do with whether you're actually going to enjoy reading the story and so many trailers it seems like um one of the books we recently reviewed that we really liked the trailer was horrible and and honestly had i have seen the trailer before we decided to read the book i i really would have thought this looks really cheesy maybe we should pass on this one it, yeah, you know, because yeah, it just that, wasn't, it wasn't fair to the book. Yours was hysterical right. and right in line with the book. It's easily the best book trailer we've seen. So, yeah, look, I, I'm not sure that people understand that they can actually turn people off with the book trailer. That's you know they say there's no such thing as bad publicity, but there is, there really is. And if you put out a cheesy book trailer, then it's yeah, it's maybe more people know that your book exists, but but none of them want to actually read it. See, I think that that's that's kind of an inaccurate statement specifically for reading, just that there's no such thing as bad publicity. The difference is there's publicity, so you'll turn on and watch a half-hour TV show. Maybe you'll spend 90 minutes watching a movie, but, you know, after you've purchased a book for 10 or 15 or $20, you've got the commitment of, you know, easily five or six hours of time you spend in it. So I think that readers can make a snap decision much, much quicker. You know, I'll watch a movie I think might be garbage. It's 90 minutes, but I really don't want to commit several days of my reading time to something I don't feel really attached to. Right. And there are so many books. You know, you walk into a bookstore and there are hundreds of books. There are dozens of books in the new releases section, uh, most of which will be moved into general fiction within two weeks' time. So, it's yeah, it, there's a lot of competition. And, and if you're going to get people's attention, you really hope that you can do it in a way that actually appeals to people. All right. So in honor of you uh, crowdsourcing your uh, your cover for Machine Man, which we kind of glazed over, so we talked a little bit about the serial. We decided to crowdsource some questions um, for you from some of our listeners. And uh, oh, okay, <laughs> okay. Some of them are a little tongue in cheek. For example, uh, Doc O'Donnell, uh-huh. who is a, a writer friend of ours and a countryman of yours, actually. Okay. Um, he, his first qu- he has several questions, but his first question is Vegemite or Marmite? Oh, look. That, that is a ridiculous question. It's got to be Vegemite. Um, Marmite <laughs> is British, um, so it, it's Vegemite all the way. Okay. Can you explain to us? Because <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I know I have no idea what that means. I've heard it, and I'm sure I don't know. <laughs> right. I no, it, what does that even mean? Well, Vegemite is is a spread that you put on toast or a sandwich. Uh, it's, you know, it's this black... Um, disgusting looking disgusting smelling um and to anyone but australians disgusting tasting um <laughs> residue made from i think when in the brewing process for beer uh, something like that but uh yeah it's it's one of those things like cricket that unless you've grown up with it there's no point even trying to convert to it as an adult is it's you know just just write it off as part of some foreign experience but you know i've as people who who grow up with it you know Vegemite's terrific. <laughs> I, I think based on, based on your description, I'm going to take your advice, and as an adult, I'm just going to pass if offered. Yeah, and look, if you do try it, the, the mistake that people make is they think it's like um, peanut butter, and they, they spread on a lot. That's, that's a huge mistake, <laughs> may I say. You want a tiny, tiny bit of Vegemite. Well, all right. Well, yeah, I was, they, they do get the questions. Do get a little more serious. Uh, They're just a little. <laughs> right. Okay, our friend Doc again has a question, and uh, we're just reading them verbatim, so this is a little bit long-winded. Apologies for that. Um, 
he wants to know what you think the future, what do you think about the future of publishing? And he says, he'd like to know your thoughts on book piracy, which is bound to blow up like it did in the music industry when it was digitalized. Your online serial uh, of what ended up being Machine Man was very cool and a very exciting idea. Did you think you'd ever adapt the serialization into a full-length novel, or were you approached by publishers early on? Um, he's got like eight questions. So I can, <laughs> yeah, I can give, yeah, that's a lot of questions but, already. Let's, 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 let's zero let's in. It right there. I think, we've got I think if we that. zero in on uh, the future of publishing and the idea of uh, book piracy, I think I think that was one of the big things he was looking to hear, hear about from you. Yeah, look, the... I'm a huge fan of ebooks, um, both as a reader and as an author. I think they're wonderful. I, I love the ability to finish a book on an e-reader and then have other books immediately suggested to you, which you can have in your hand seconds later just by clicking through the device. Um, I think that everybody loves to read a great book. That we have different ideas about what great books are, but if we can finish a great book and immediately start another one that is also likely to be a great book, then everyone will read all the time. Um, I think with print books, one of the problems is that it's reasonably hard to find a book you can be sure that you'll enjoy. It's not impossible, but but it's it's fairly difficult. And when you've got TV that's right there, you've got movies that are right there, you've got the internet with all that free content that's right there, I think that lures people away from reading. So um, the publishing industry has resisted ebooks for quite a while. Um, in the US, it's a lot better now than it was even a few years ago. But um, here in Australia, publishers are all very wary about them and, and basically trying to prevent the take up of ebooks, uh, which I think is terribly self destructive. Um, when it comes to piracy, yeah, look, I, th I think publishers are still doing very silly things with ebooks. Uh, I've, I'm constantly getting emails now because the Machine Man ebook is priced at uh, $9.99, I think. And the, the new model that publishers have is they don't allow uh, e-tailers to discount that. So it's, it's 10 bucks everywhere. But the paperback can be discounted. So in some cases, if the, um, the retailer is heavily discounting the paper version, the, the paper version is cheaper than the ebook, and that drives people crazy for a very good reason. Um, so, so look, that's a real shame. Um, I think that the, um, the digital rights management thing is a shame as well. Um, the crazy thing about piracy from my perspective is I remember being a 10-year-old kid with a Commodore 64, and the games back then had copy protection on them. You had to hand around photocopied bits of paper with the passwords, and they went through. You know, they had these cardboard wheels they would include with the game where you had to spin it and, and answer a question from the wheel to get through the copy protection. This has been going on for 30 years, and it's no better today than it was back then. Unfortunately, the publishers are still so terrified by the idea of people having this content for free that they focus exclusively on, on that and forget about the fact that they're making life difficult for all these legitimate customers. Um, I totally believe that if you offer uh, content without digital rights management and it's easy to get in the form that you want and it's reasonably priced, then people will pay for it. And I think we've seen that with... Um, with the iTunes store, with, with music stores in, in a variety of forms, that people will pay a reasonable price for content that they could pirate just because it's there and it's convenient. I think that people do want to 
pay money to content providers. They don't want to rip them off largely. So, look, um, the serial, I, I didn't put any digital rights management on. People could, um, if they chose to, actually copy that and post it on the web for free. Um, the ebook, uh, unfortunately, does have digital rights management on it because it's a publisher's decision rather than mine. Um, and, and that's the way it'll be for a while. I'm pretty sure that maybe five years' time, most of the most of the ebooks will be DRM-free. I'm hoping that that publishers will realise it's just um, counterproductive to put DRM on this stuff because the amount of complaints you end up getting from people who can't make it work, who it doesn't work on their device, and they can't transfer it, and and all the rest, it's just ridiculous. Whereas people who genuinely want to pirate books have no trouble in doing so. So, yeah, look, I'm, I'm really hoping we can move to a bit more of a DRM future with piracy. Um, I, I don't subscribe to the view that piracy robs authors of, of a significant amount of income. I think it, it takes a percentage, basically. Like there's, there's kind of a myth that you can be pirated into oblivion, that everyone pirates your book rather than buys it. And, and I think the reality is that if you're very popular, then you get pirated a lot, but you're also selling a lot of of physical copies and, and legal copies. So, you know, maybe you're losing 10% of your sales to piracy, but but you're not getting pirated into oblivion. So it's, uh, it's just a, a cost of doing business, basically. And the sooner we all accept that and look at seizing opportunities rather than trying to lock down content, the better we'll be. That actually just reminded me of I, I've, one of my hobbies or things that I like to pay attention to is uh, media activism and stuff like that. And there's a couple people I follow on Twitter who recently were talking about. Um, so I guess there was, and I apologize because I can't remember the the um, the company, but one of the major TV stations in the U.S. had decided to take some of their content off of Hulu, and so you can only see it um, for pay wherever. And they were saying it was because they were worried they were losing revenue by having it basically for free on Hulu, just for, you know, whatever they make off of ad revenue. And um, studies actually the, that the media company did or had access to said that there was a huge, like, rise of, of piracy of those, those titles and stuff because they were no longer available through Hulu. So people weren't going to pay for it. They were just going to fight it through illegal means instead. So I think you're right on with what you're saying. Right, yeah. And I think the trap that a few of publishers and content providers in general have fallen into is they look at the world of five years ago and they think, well, let's get back to that when our stuff wasn't being pirated so much. And the reality is that we live in a world now where this stuff will be out there. And you can either lock it all down and make it hard for paying customers in an attempt to thwart pirates or you can just get on with it except that this is the world that some of your stuff will be pirated um, and make it available to people who, who do want to pay for it. Like, There's nothing more frustrating to me than hearing from someone who wants to buy one of my books but they can't because it's only available for you know the Sony device and only in particular regions and it's just crazy. You know, We go through all this effort to try to convince people to I guess become aware of you first and, and then actually be interested in your stuff and, and they want to pay you but, but we won't let them. Mm-hmm. You said something really interesting. I've been in in retail for many many years, and as you were right before you said the words, it you know I thought the same thing. It's you know it's it's a it's a cost of doing business, and there's an acceptable loss, you know, theft in retail, and you know the same yep. thing would apply to this as a product. 
that at a certain point you expend more effort, more energy, and more dollars to keep it from happening than what you're actually losing, and then that becomes a, a different problem. So I think that you're right, and publishers may start seeing that they're they're putting way too much time and effort into doing that instead of just bettering their, you know, what I would call in my business customer service. I suspect it's an emotional issue too for authors as well as some editors that they they don't look at it purely as a financial issue and they don't just weigh up, okay, is it actually making financial sense to lock this down? But but rather they they just hate the idea of people getting this for free. And they stop right there and go, okay, we must make sure that no one can read this book for free or, or watch this movie for free. And, and that's the end of their, their whole decision-making process when it shouldn't be. We're going to move along to the next question. Um, yeah, listener, I'll stop ranting about ebooks. Okay. I, I can go for a long time on this stuff. But yeah, we should probably move on. Um, listener Michael King asks, um, you've satirized many large companies in your books. Have you ever heard any reaction from them? No, I haven't. I, I mentioned my first book, Syrup, was set largely in the Coca-Cola company. And before that book was published... Uh, I heard, well, people had two schools of thought. One was that Coke was going to be so thrilled with this this, sto- gl- this story glorifying them that they would send me free Coke for the rest of my life. And the other school of thought was that they would sue me into oblivion. Uh, and neither happened. The book came out. It, the publisher put this big disclaimer on the front saying it wasn't real. Um, but that was it. Uh, and so for my second novel, Jennifer Government, uh, I had well, a whole bunch of, of companies in that one, but, but primarily Nike committing this um, mass murder marketing campaign. And yeah, there was um, my, my agent was quite um, hopeful that I would be sued by Nike because it would be <laughs> excellent publicity. But um, the closest we got to an actual response was, um, oh, yeah, I did this, this interview with a journalist, I think, from somewhere in Canada. And at the time, I thought it was an odd interview because he wasn't interested in the book at all, except for how do you think you can get away with writing this kind of thing and not be sued? And then I, I saw the, interview, the review when it came out, uh, the, the article rather, and he, um, he had called up Nike and said, are you guys aware of this novel um, by this guy who has Nike being this evil villain in it? Um, and the quote from Nike was... Um, let me see if I can remember this correctly. Uh, this is not the first book and probably won't be the last to use Nike for the purposes of satire. Um, Nike believes in free speech. So, look, what I think it boils down to is that it would be terrible publicity for a consumer goods company to sue uh, a humor writer. And, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the reality of it. Could they sue me? You know, maybe, but, but I would hope not. But, but the reality is it wouldn't be good for them to do so. Okay, so the next uh, listener question we've got is from a gentleman named Sean Fox. His question is, what was your initial reaction to having Jennifer Government made into a movie? Well, my initial reaction was, holy crap, yes. (laughs) Um, Because at the time, it was a really weird experience. I... um, the same day that my my original publisher, which was Penguin Putnam with Syrup, um, they passed on Jennifer Government. And the same day, I got word from my agent that George Clooney and Steve Soderbergh wanted to buy the film rights to it. So I thought my career was over for about 20 seconds, and then all of a sudden, I had this amazing film deal. So, yeah, it was a it was a crazy experience. Um, as it turned out, that didn't go very far or didn't go all the way to a movie I should say there were scripts commissioned uh, and rewritten and and the way that this often works is 
um, they just go round and round. And unfortunately, most books that are optioned are never actually made. Um, and that's what happened with this one. Um, Soderbergh and Clooney decided they didn't want to be producers anymore, so they dissolved their production company. And, and Jennifer Government has been kind of floating around since with a, with a few possibilities now and again. And um, But, yeah, you never really know. I'm still hopeful that that actually makes it into a film one day. But at the moment, uh, I... Yeah, it's hard to know. The thing is, I've become so cynical about the whole filmmaking process because so many times a book of mine had been optioned and I would hear all these wonderful news and the producers would tell me this A-list actor was interested and this A-list actress was interested and all the rest. And it never happened. So by around the start of this year, I had pretty much resigned myself to none of my books ever making it into films. I thought if they if they turn up in theatres and the projectionist rolls it and there it is on the screen, I'll believe it then. Uh, and then these guys um, who had the rights to syrup uh, told me, okay, we're actually, we're going to filming, we're going into production in June. And I said, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> and, you know, they, they had this, uh, they had Amber Heard attached as the lead actress and, and they had finance and all the rest and I was, yeah, okay. And they wanted me to come over and do a cameo and I said, well, yeah, okay, look, if you, if you actually go into production, I'll do that, but let's see if it happens. And it was, it was about two weeks before the cameras started rolling and I had to actually book my flight. I thought, maybe this film is actually going to happen. <laughs> and, and it did. And I, I went over there and there were trucks and 50 people carrying equipment everywhere and, and actors and, and the thing actually was filmed. So it was, it was astounding. So, so I'm kind of open now to the possibility that stuff does get made. You know, that's, that's fantastic news, by the way, about, about Syrup actually being filmed. When you, were, when you started talking about the movies, the first thing I was thinking back to what you said, and I thought, I wonder how the murderous Nike Corporation is going to feel when, you know, Sandra Bullock or Julia Roberts is chasing them around in a movie if they'd have the same, the same kind of opinion as in a book. I get the feeling that might change a little bit. Yeah, and the question, of course, is whether the real company names survive an adaptation right. because yeah, it's, yeah. it's a big ask. You know, if you're going to spend tens of millions of dollars making a movie, the, the last thing anything anyone wants is to have that movie embargoed because the courts won't let it out for three years until the court case is decided. Max, can you give us one piece of advice for aspiring authors? Oh, okay. Look, the classic one is to read a lot and write a lot. And I think that's completely true. I think that's someone who has a real interest in telling stories and in reading other people's stories will sooner or later find an audience because it's just that, that constant repetition of doing it. And if you're really interested in this stuff, if you have a passion for it, then you do that because it's fun. And I think that's, that's absolutely critical for a writer to enjoy what they're doing, to do it for the process rather than for the end, the, you know, the, the fame, what there is um, of having a book published. If you're doing it because you just love telling stories, then I think that person will always get there. Um, the other thing I'd say is to nurture what makes you different. I think this is something that, that maybe gets stamped out of people in workshops and, and occasionally in creative writing classes. The idea that you start learning rules of storytelling and you must follow them. I think it's, it's a real shame when people start giving up the thing that makes them different, the, the independent voice they may have. And the only reason that anyone will, will, want, will want, want to read some of your stuff is that it's different, that you have something unique to say. So you don't want to be completely insane about it, but you, you want to be able to nurture that piece of yourself, that piece of your writing that is different, that doesn't follow the rules and does something that people haven't seen before. 
Awesome. Uh, hey, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on? No, I don't. Because, uh, I, I don't talk about stuff I'm currently working on. I, I'm sorry, but uh, it's like a, a thing. You know, the, the whole machine man writing in public thing was very different for me. But um, yeah, normally I just sit down. I do not tell people what I'm working on until it actually is is complete. So yeah, I'm rewriting uh, a book that I'm I'm really excited about, but I can't actually talk about it at the moment. Which is fair, because if I were you, and we ask this of every interview we have, and if I was you, I've asked this before and thought, yeah, I wouldn't tell anybody either <laughs> until I was really sure. So I, I can totally appreciate that. Is there anything else you'd like to mention or talk about that maybe we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, look, I, I would just like to thank you for your theatrical performance of my work in your <laughs> podcast, because that's, uh, you know, you've taken it to a whole new level there. And I, I could really see it unfolding before my eyes. So, yeah, no, thanks for that. Oh. <laughs> Maybe we'll tag it. We'll tag it onto the end of the episode or something, so everybody can hear it. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to deprive people of that. <laughs> Max, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us today. You've been just a fantastic guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, once again, very big thanks to Max Berry for agreeing to come on and talk to us. It was really, really great to get a little time with him today. What an interesting guy he turned out to be. Huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's some other things that are going on with your booked crew. Um, this coming weekend, Rob and I will be uh, getting in a car with Richard Thomas and Chris Deal, both from The Velvet and contributors to Warmed and Bound, and we're going to Corydon, Indiana, which is about uh, six and a half hours south of us here for a Frank Bill release party for his uh, first book, Crimes in Southern Indiana. That is going to be very exciting stuff. Yeah, and speaking of Warmed and Bound, uh, I just want to remind everybody, Booked is in the Kindle edition of Warmed and Bound. You should go check it out. It's on Amazon. It's $7.95, and uh, you get a bunch of extra stuff beyond just the stories. You get transcriptions of some of our past interviews. You get some extra thoughts from us, and there's a bunch of content that you know involves other people as well. So definitely worth the money, and uh, if you haven't bought it already, you should run over and check it out right now. Absolutely. A ton of great content in the Kindle edition. In addition to us, there's some other author interviews. I mean, we have our transcriptions in there. It just I think it's a really good look at, at some of the velvet culture, you know, the kind of behind the scenes getting inside the, uh, the author's heads um, that contributed to that book. And I mean, really reasonably priced. It's all a whopping eight bucks for what's got to be. And I don't even know how to page count it, but it's got to be 700 pages of content in there now. Mm hmm. You're definitely not getting uh, definitely not getting shortchanged on that. <laughs> and then, uh, in addition to, if you're really just opposed to uh, to buying a Kindle copy of it, um, you can head over to Goodreads. If you look up Warmed and Bound down at the bottom, we're hosting a giveaway, um, a huge, huge Warmed and Bound um, giveaway bundle, which includes a copy of Warmed and Bound signed by Richard Thomas and Chris Deal. And there is a really good chance we may be adding a couple more contributor signatures. Um, to this before we send it out. Um, you also get a copy of Shivers 6, signed by Richard Thomas, uh, Cien Fuego, signed by Chris Deal, a copy of Stranger Wills, signed by Caleb J. Ross, and a copy of One October Falls, signed by Christopher Dwyer. I mean, these are uh, all people who have been on book. You can listen, go back and listen to their interviews if you'd like, but you're getting all signed copies, five of them, sent to you, no charge to you. All you got to do is click the button, click the uh, button on the Goodreads page and hope to win. And we've also got it linked on our the front page of our website, bookedpodcast.com. There's a little widget up in the right in the center on the front page. You can just click it to enter through that as well. I'm trying to make it really easy for you to get some signed books here. All right, Rob, 
tell everybody where they can get a hold of us at, and we'll wrap this up. Sounds good. Okay. If you want to email us, you can uh, send an email to bookedpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to our website, which is bookedpodcast.com. Uh, you can get us on Twitter. We are at bookedpodcast. And the best place to, to get in touch with us and interact with us is on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash bookedpodcast. Uh, we try to keep a, a lively conversation going on, not only about the episodes that we have, but just of other book uh, information as well. We'll post stuff like the Goodreads contest and other things like that. So uh, I think that's where we, we do most of our interacting with uh, our listeners and stuff. So it's a great place to get in touch with us there. Hey, it's where we crowdsourced those questions for Max earlier. Oh. See, had yeah. you been following us on uh, on Facebook, you could ask Max Barry a question. Yeah, definitely a place to go. So go to facebook.com slash podcast. Click like so that every time uh, we do something new, it'll show up in your wall. And it's a nice, simple way to, to keep up with what's going on over here at Booked. Very cool, Rob. Anything else you want to add before we go? Really quickly, you can get us on iTunes. You can get us on the Zoom Network. You can get us on Stitcher. And uh, you can also listen to us straight from our website, bookpodcast.com. That's enough plugging, I think, for today. I think we overplugged, but it's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that'll just about do it for a great interview episode of Booked. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. they'll wonder. As I piece by piece replace myself Steel and circuits will make me whole But I still feel so Sorry, she'll say it's not your fault Or is it she'll eye me suspiciously Hearing the whir of the servos inside And she'll scream and try to run But there'll be no place to hide When a crazy cyborg wants to make you his robot ride Cause it's gonna be the future soon And I won't always be this way Oh